Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is the Grammy Award-winning composer and conductor Eric Whitaker, who is nearly synonymous with American choral music. This summer, he released Sing Gently, his latest virtual choir project on YouTube. Whitaker spoke to me from his home in Los Angeles. Eric, you do a lot of things well, but let's talk about the thing I think you do best, which is writing choral music. I think that maybe starts with influences. What went into the stew for you before, and I guess after, you wrote your first choral work? Well, I didn't write my first choral work until I was 21 years old. And until I was 18, I didn't really know that much about classical music even. I didn't read music. I played by ear. Most of my, I would say my massive musical influences from say the age 12 to 18 were electronic. So I was obsessed with Kraftwerk and Depeche Mode and Kitaro and Tangerine Dream. I know all those guys. Yeah, right. Like like synth, synth orchestral pop. I don't even know what you would call it, but I, I was enamored with electronics. And I was, I was a bit of a computer head too. This was back in the mid 80s. And so I'd learned to program in the basic computer language. And I spent my entire high school career trying to be the fifth member of Depeche Mode, really. Truth be told, I wouldn't mind still being the fifth member of Depeche Mode. I, I could carry their bags for them. <laughs> when I joined choir, it was when I went to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I grew up in Nevada. The, the first piece we sang was the Requiem by Mozart. And it wasn't just how perfectly it's written, I mean, the, the parts that he wrote. And we, we began with the Kyrie, which is that, that epic fugue. But I'd never heard Counterpoint, or I'd, I'd never been aware of Counterpoint, but I'd certainly never heard it in three dimensions, the way that you hear in a choir. And I think looking back at all of that, just the, the sense of genuinely being part of something larger than myself taking that first breath together and everybody launching into this impossibly complex, beautiful music, I was hooked. And it's, that's a long, long way of saying, I think, at least in terms of my musical influences, there were film scores, big film nerd, there was all of that electronic music, but it, it was my first introduction to choir was so powerful and so strong that I think it's, it's the dragon that I've been chasing ever since. That fugue is a monster. And there's so many ways in, and there's so much happening. And then I think from this electronica, you got this love for space and the way lines can come forward and recede as they do in the best techno, right? Yeah. If you look at techno on paper, <laughs> it's like, okay, it's eight bars of this, and then this comes in for eight bars, and then this comes in. But that's not really fair because <laughs> there's such a subtle 
receding and advancing sonically that the best techno guys and girls know how to do yeah, that's and right. know how to keep your interest with minimal material. A lot of your work does the same. Yeah. The way you have these expansions and contractions or dissonance resolving to consonants, tension and release. Of course, that's that's every choral work on some level. Yeah, but yeah. I certainly can hear um, your attention to those aspects of choral writing. I love that. Yeah, and I would, I would say it goes even further than that, that in terms of electronic composition, you're using a sequencer, and sequencer is just by nature additive or subtractive, right? If, if you listen to craft work, like you say, it's eight bars of this, 16 bars of this, but it's about adding instruments and subtracting instruments. So there's this very modular aspect to it. And I think before I knew what I was doing, I was learning how to increase gravity in, in the piece by adding or by subtracting, just in terms of music. It wasn't until hearing that fugue from the Mozart Requiem that that I think I understood then that there's an integrity with each line, right? That each line should be its own little universe. And once you add those two concepts together, I think it starts to create some some seductive music. That's it. The seduction, that's an important aspect of choral music, to put it in basic terms. I don't want to get bored. You can't bore your listener in the middle. The listener can't say, oh enough of this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for me, it's even more than, than not getting bored. It's that for me, I want from all music, even if it's just an, an Ella Fitzgerald uh, standard, I want a transcendent experience from music. I want a journey. I want to be a different person than I, I was the beginning of the piece. And so when I'm composing, I'm trying to constantly engage the listener and the performer so that there's there's a sense of transformation, even if it's just on the on the most basic general level so so for me it goes even beyond keeping keeping the the listener from being bored but more that i my ultimate musical experience is to grab the audience member by the lapels and just sort of bring them into this other universe for a little while and then set them back down so let's talk a bit about process if you're writing a new work i know you've written orchestrally but let's just say for chorus what does that process look like mm. Well, choral music is very specific because it's the combination of words and music, right? And so I spent a long, long, long time choosing the poetry that, that I'll set to music. For me, I, I always think it's, it's the most important part of the process because if you choose a poem that is truly well-written and is loaded with music, it's, it's already buzzing with music, then in a way the composer's job is halfway done. And I, I find with my my most successful settings, and I, I don't mean success in terms of performances, but success artistically, that they're just poems that I took where I just quieted myself enough to do what the poet was saying to do, that all of the instructions for the music are there in the words themselves. So the beginning of the process starts with me choosing the poem and then memorizing it 
and living with it. And sometimes it's a few days before things start to bubble to the surface. Sometimes it's weeks or months. And I, I still have a few poems that I've been sitting on for a decade waiting until I know I'll set them one day. I'm just waiting until I'm a good enough composer <laughs> to, to set them. I like that. So the innate musicality of the poetry is already there. And it's your job as the composer to draw out certain things to highlight the musicality that's there. It's a great point you bring up about memorizing the poem itself. Just like when we memorize music, the sheet music is, of course, a tool, but it's only once you memorize that music that you're truly free as an interpreter. Absolutely. I would have to imagine that as a composer, owning those words. <laughs> really sets you free when when deciding what path to take. Yeah, that's exactly right. Not only does it need to, I think, become a part of me once I've memorized it, but also then I find that there's that strange part of the brain that is pattern seeking, you know, in the subconscious that is finding little connections between words and phrases and structure that I think happens in the background a lot of the time. And so, so sometimes there'll be a revelation that about the music, especially structurally, because I spent a lot of time worrying about the, the structure of the music, how, how it's going to unfold. And a lot of those questions get answered in, in the dark recesses of the mind somehow. It slowly gets revealed as the process of composing happens. Mm, it's this, this knot that's unraveling as maybe, like say, for example, some of these internal rhymes start to present themselves. Yeah, that's right. Or, or yeah, internal rhymes precisely, or, or on the, on the more macro level, literally structure, right? That number of syllables at the beginning or at the end, or the perfect poem for me, when, whenever I think of perfect poems, there's a poem by Octavio Paz and it's originally in Spanish, but I said it in English. It's called a boy and a girl. And it's just this simple, delicate, perfect poem. And you can see it's three stanzas, but there's this transformation that happens between the first stanza and the third stanza that even when you read it, you get this, this gut punch reaction to it. But then the more time I've spent with it, now I've known this poem for nearly 30 years. I said it 20 years ago. It still reveals uh, things to me, this deep, deep, deep structure. I like that. When a lot of folks talk about Eric Whitaker, <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> they, they, no, 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 they, they say, oh, it's the American choral sound. It <laughs> has this American choral sound. Uh, I've, I've read that often, probably not as often as you have. First of all, <laughs> do you think there is something that is the American choral sound? And is that what you have? Huh. Let's try to define it. Do you think that's something that exists? I wasn't even aware of it until I've heard it too. And I remember Stephen Layton, who is a brilliant conductor in England, and he's got a professional group called Polyphony. And they did a, an album of my, of my music, I think 15 years ago. And I remember him telling me that his first encounter with, with some of my music was that he said only an American could have written this. Hmm. And at the time, I had spent the vast majority of my life in America. You know, I'd done some traveling, but I hadn't lived in London at that point or really spent time now as I have now in Europe and in Asia. And I didn't really know what that meant. I never thought of myself as an American composer. Of, of course, I'm American. But the more time that I've spent abroad, and my wife is Belgian, so I see now, I think, what he means. And I think, I think he's right. So 
the qualities that I think are American, and it's a complicated issue right now because <laughs> I think it's what the best of America is, and I don't think America is displaying much of this right now, is I think there's an innocence and a naivete in the best way in the music where it's it's so optimistic and so honest and emotional and vulnerable and and open so open sounds but also just open emotionally Hmm. and as i say naivete i think there's a kind of approach that american music can take and i think i do this where it's not a disregard for what's come before but it's it's actually there's no sense of shame about getting it wrong Mm -hmm. it's just just it's just making music, you know, um, and trying to access a very pure emotional world. My experience traveling is that that's not the case in a lot of other places. And so I, I can imagine that that adds to this kind of sound, this American sound. That and a whole bunch of added ninths, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that was my follow-up was how do we quantify that? Is it yeah. is it open fifths and added ninths? And uh, I guess you know, like uh, yeah. So I, and I do both of that. I use a bunch of I you know I always voice in the in the the bass and tenor. It's always like these these big open thirds and open fifths and yeah. And the the added ninth thing, I think it's a combination. I took it from American composer Morton Lordson and Arvo Pert. Mm-hmm. Those are the two places that I got those that idea from. Yeah, so I suppose those things add up to in a kind of American sound. But it's it's funny that we like when you say about quantifying it as a composer, and maybe it's because I came to a music theory late. I I rarely think in terms of music theory. I definitely went through the Crucible. You know, I did my master's degree at Juilliard, and I studied with Mary Anthony Cox, who was a protege of Nadia Boulanger. So I <laughs> I definitely got my <laughs> I got a bashed in my head. Right. I never think to myself, oh, I'm adding a ninth. I, it's always about the the emotional integrity of the gesture. Maybe you have a bit of the tri-chord theory, which is try this chord, try that chord. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I've never heard that before. I'm going to use that. That's really brilliant. <laughs> I like those names you've mentioned. I, I can see where those influences come from. I, you know, when you were first describing the sound, it made me think of post-piano concerto Aaron Copland. Arvo Pert's Fratris, uh, the really leaning in to to tension and release. Oh yeah, it's love it. And also, do you know do you know his passion, the Passio? Yes, yeah, yeah. To me, it's one of the seminal choral works of the last five hundred years. I think it's as important as any other choral work.
that's where I first learned this lesson of, as you said, tension and release. But Arvo Parrott will just leave a phrase with tension. Right. Right. He'll, in a very technical terms, he'll just have, he'll have the suspension and the resolution in the same chord and just leave it at that and then pause for three seconds and then go on. And I'd never heard music ever that that did that kind of thing. Mm. And still, I'm I'm haunted by it. I'm I'm just enchanted by it. For me, what it feels like when you hear that sound is that you're you're standing still and moving at the speed of light at the same time. And that's my favorite thing in music. I think it's a foundation of my musical language. Actually, I only had the chance to meet him once, and I tried to convey in 30 seconds, "Thank you for giving me this universe of sound." I was all set to do an interview with him, but he's a very shy person. Yeah. And I ended up just emailing him my questions and he sent me back just like two line responses to everything. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> so I had, I had saved, you know, eight pages for this at the time and it turned into a back page interview, but you know, much like Parrot, everything was pithy and on point. And it's like, I can't say that's a bad interview. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's such a brilliant artist I find because of that. Right. So that it's, it's not only that he, he writes this beautiful, beautiful music, but that he, he has disciplined himself to keeping the artist protected. Mm. I'm really impressed that he's, that he's done that, that he's lived a life. I mean, he's got to be one of the most famous living composers, but as a, he's, he's been able to to keep his little walled garden protected so that he can still access that very delicate, intimate sound that he does. What do you mean by that when you say he's able to keep his wall protected? Could you expand that? Yeah, I mean, not that I would remotely compare myself to Arvo Parrott, someone that great, but just in terms of this conversation, in my own world, even right now we're having this conversation and I don't mind talking very freely and openly about my process or what I think about the music. And the thing is, though, at some point, this happened to me years ago, I realized that the talking about the process actually starts corrupting the process, uh-huh. right? Because in, in, a, in an effort to quantify what it is, I can't really quantify it. It's, it's so intuitive, and I, I can paint this beautiful picture of how I compose a piece, but the truth is it's just a mess. You know, and it's it's not just a mess in that I'm physically in my underwear and pulling my hair out every morning and thinking that if I had studied harder, I could have been an architect. <laughs> it's it's actually more that in order to access what I'm going for, which is always just the truth, whatever that that looks like, it really means not knowing what I'm doing and not knowing where I'm going. And right, and so, but that's a terrible interview answer. Right. If somebody says, "How you know? How do you do this? And what do you think about it?" And I said, "I don't know. I have no. <laughs> I really have no idea." Um. And so, I think Arvo Parrot. Well, there's an alchemy there that can't be quantified. I respect that. That's a beautiful way to say it. Yeah, there there is that alchemy, but Arvo Parrot has kept himself shielded from that. He's he's remained mysterious enough, and I mean this in the best best way that then he can still. His process is his and his alone, mm. right? The only way to scrutinize it is through the music itself, as opposed to scrutinizing the personality. That's interesting, because we have these writers outside of Parrot who are like, oh, yes, tentanabulation. Yeah. That's yeah. what he's doing here, right? But he hasn't written Harmony According to Parrot book, right? That's right. So this is speculation on our part. Yeah, that's it. And then at some point, it becomes branded, right? <laughs> that's right. And you look at the greats, the absolute greats, and there's, I mean, God, when I studied music theory and counterpoint at Juilliard, we basically were were studying what Bach 
tended to do. Right. right. <laughs> like, okay, let's just look at his works. And it, and it's, it's like a pedestal. It's on a pedestal now. And at the end of the day, it was, it was Bach genius beyond genius and just working his butt off. And yeah. you imagine that plus having 20 kids and having other job. He had all those kids and he had to deliver every Sunday. Yeah. It's, every Sunday. It's impossible. It's superhuman. But I doubt that, that if we were to interview Bach, he would have a... I hear what you're saying. He's not going to say, yeah, you have to resolve this in a stepwise motion every time. Precisely. That wasn't written on his fridge. Precisely. Yeah. You haven't built a wall, but you have, you have made something for yourself. You were self-publishing until very recently. You were an early adopter, early, early, early <laughs> of social media. Yeah. Now, a lot of what you were doing, say, 2012 is commonplace. But then it wasn't. I'm not going to say you, you understood it and you saw the future, but you definitely harnessed technology and harnessed your own, let's say, brand. And you kept your creative output, you kept control of it in a very smart way, in a way that I think other people definitely respect. Thank you for saying that. That that, that means a lot, actually. Thank you. Um, I realized I didn't throw a question in there, <laughs> well, but I, mean, um, <laughs> I guess I'm leading to now that we are post-pandemic, the virtual choir, this most recent just occurred a couple days ago. Is it number six? Number six, that's right. That was another area of technology that you pioneered in. And I have to tell you, this project kind of terrifies me because <laughs> after this interview, <laughs> I'm going to take my audio and your audio and probably some clips, and I'm going to mix it all together in Logic Pro. <laughs> and that's going to take me a few hours to do, yeah. right? All this editing. You and your team took tens of thousands of recordings of a piece and you synced it together. I cannot imagine what that <laughs> server looks like. Yeah. It's <laughs> well, thank you. It's, it's, it's actually really great that, that you understand the, the, the technology behind it, right? Because first, it's so strange these days to get once the pandemic hit, we, we got thousands of emails. I mean, literally thousands of emails from conductors and educators who said, okay, we can't be together in the same room. So please let us know how you make one of these virtual choirs. <laughs> and and my my general response was, and and it was joking, but it was only half joking, which was just, just don't make one of these. Your life is so much better without, <laughs> without this in your life. <laughs> because it's... Um, it's it's a ludicrous amount of work on the back end. Just a month, month this last virtual choir had seventeen thousand five hundred seventy two singers. So every single one of those, as you were saying, represents an audio track and a video. And I would imagine that you have to hear each of them all the way through to make sure someone didn't, I don't know, cough in the middle or slip down. Right? Oh yeah. You can't you can't trust people to yeah. say, hey. Eric, yeah, this is trust perfect. me. This this is good. I got. I nailed. I nailed this. <laughs> yeah, even worse. Ambulances or crickets or you know, we had an, <laughs> in an early virtual choir, you could hear a kid's mother yelling at him off screen. You know, like what are you doing in there with the singing? And so, so what we've what we discovered is we need 
there's just no easy way to do it, right? There's no app or there's no filter that you can apply in Logic. And so- Sorry, we, we better tell our listeners exactly what happened. So you released a track conducting this piece, something gently. What's it called? Sing Gently. Thank you. <laughs> Shouldn't yeah. have been a hard one to come up with. Okay, <laughs> you released a conducting track for Sing Gently. Then people would sing along and submit their recording. And then you had to sync up these 17,000-ish recordings if they made the cut, if they didn't blunder in the middle or have other technical issues. Yes, except even if they blunder in the middle, that's okay. Oh, okay. Um, it's only technical issues. Right? The only reason a video doesn't get uploaded is if, is if the sound is or the video is corrupted. I see. What we discovered, it, we, we discovered this over years and years of doing this, is that when the choir gets big enough, it actually smooths out the rough edges. It's the most extraordinary thing. It's it's it, you know if you've ever been to a football game and you hear sixty thousand people singing, right? Right. A fair number of those people are drunk and are singing the wrong notes, especially at a Liverpool match. But they can still get through. You'll never walk alone. <laughs> still sounds beautiful. Yeah, exactly. In fact, it not only sounds beautiful, it kind of the hair goes up on the back of your neck because it's there's this haunting sound of voices masked. For me, it's the most beautiful sound. And so we have this great advantage where where once you put all these these voices together, even if there are wrong notes in there, they really get smoothed out. It's it's an extraordinary phenomenon. I'm often asked, why don't I make a virtual orchestra? And the answer is always that oboes do not scale well at all. That right, 300 oboes, it doesn't get better. Yeah, it's the old joke of how do you get two piccolos to play in tune? You shoot one of them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so we, we have that real benefit of, of being able to batch mix. And what I mean by that is we'll take 100 or 200 of the tracks, uh, basically at random, and then just throw them all up on, onto a screen, say a 200-track session in Logic. And then just a little mixing, but mostly just aligning, making sure that everything is aligned. Mm. We learned a long time ago, it's, it's the most lo-fi possible way of doing this. But on my conductor track, I give a silent one, two three, and then everybody claps on four. And then we can just line up that spike, right? You can oh, see that spike brilliant. as an audio. Yeah, it's, it's the most lo-fi way of doing it, but it works. And so once everything is lined up and then you just hit play, it it's surprisingly well mixed already. I mean, there's definitely some work to be done. When there's 17,000 singers, then, then you've got session after session after session. I mean, the Sopranos alone were, how many were there? There were 6,500 of them. So you can imagine even doing 100 batch logic sessions, that's 65 sessions just for the Sopranos of 100, uh, 100 singers each. And then once you've got that, then you've got a kind of manageable, say, 150 tracks that then get mixed into the final version. I see. Ironically, yeah, the audio was is actually easier these days than the video. Mm-hmm. Because the, the video, there's two parts of it. One is that that a render time Right when you've got seventeen thousand moving videos in a single frame, just to render, say, a five-second video clip can take two or three days before you can see it to make sure that it works. Okay. And then the other one is, and this is one we never thought we would run into, 
is that when you have over 17,000 moving videos and you want to include every single one in the final shot as we did, at some point you start running out of pixels on a 4K monitor. Wow. There's there's literally not enough diodes on the screen. That's why we have landscapes of people passing through and the final version on YouTube. Yeah, and and also because part of our core aesthetic is that everyone is included. Right. We want the barrier of entry to be as low as possible. And so that also means that at some point every single person is going to be on screen. Wow. That was very important for us. But we we had to do some calculations and figure out, okay, so that final shot, everybody will get about nine pixels right. on a giant 4K screen, right? right? <laughs> so we're quickly approaching the, uh, yeah, we'll have to go to an 8K display at some point. Or cap your numbers. I mean, that must be a fear too, post-pandemic. It's like, oh my God, what if we get 100,000 people? Yeah, like yeah. Then I'm going to be working on this until 2023. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It'll never end. Um <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you, I mean, what I'd love to do is is figure out a way to do a, a virtual choir that that is self-evolving mm. so that you you release some sort of web version of it that is complete-ish, but then people can continue to upload their videos and they continue to be integrated into that video so that it's always expanding. That's a little sci-fi, but I like it. <laughs> Eric, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, As much as I loved the virtual choir, I'm looking forward to hearing some real choirs uh, post-pandemic. Oh, me too. Me too. I'll tell you, I ache for for live music making. I, I can't wait to get back to it too. And thank you so much for having me on. It's been a true honor. Thank you. been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from Depeche Mode's Enjoy the Silence from the album Violator on Mute Records, from the Kyrie from Mozart's Requiem, Academy and Chorus of St. Martin in the Fields, conducted by Neville Mariner on Phillips, from Computer Love by Kraftwerk, off the album Computer World on Warner Brothers EMI, from Lux Aurumque by Eric Whitaker, performed by the Eric Whitaker Singers on Light and Gold on DECA, from Arvil Pertz Passio, performed by Tonus Peregrinus, directed by Anthony Pitts on Naxos, and from You'll Never Walk Alone, from the Rodgers and Hammerstein Musical Carousel, performed by the Scousers of Liverpool FC. Our intro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, Editor-in-Chief at ListenMusicCulture.com. Our outro music is Eric Whitaker's Virtual Choir 6, Sing Gently. Hear it in full on YouTube. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Thank you for listening.